this one last song about the Lord's faithfulness. Goodness to us. The sun comes up. It's a sinful worm redeem Jesus my only hope thou art strength of my failing flesh and heart oh could I catch one smile from thee and drop into eternity oh if we could live our days we come to the end of our days and say that Lord if we could just get one more glimpse of you Lord and be completely and totally dependent on you so on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come.
in your faithfulness and your goodness to us, Lord. Lord, we've just proved you over and over, Lord, time after time. Lord, you're so faithful to us, Lord, even in our unfaithfulness. Lord, help us to be dependent, poor in spirit, Lord, dependent on your faithfulness. We just thank you for that, Lord. Just speak to our hearts as the word comes this morning. Mold us and change us more into the image of Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats? Good morning, Family Church. Good morning. It's been quite some time since I've been up here to preach. Um, as many of you know, Amanda and I just recently had our baby boy. His name is Elias James Nallen. And so he's a little over three weeks old now. And so we are well rested up and ready to do everything that we need to do. So... I can say that actually much more for myself, but we do want to say thank you. Most of the time, we're on the other end of giving and meeting uh, needs and calling church members and delivering meals, and um, this was the first time really where we got to experience the love of the family that we hear so much about from so many church members where they have people stopping by and calling and praying for them and delivering meals. We were overwhelmed by your your hospitality, and your love for us. So we just want to say thank you so much. It has been such a blessing um, for us and, and a testimony for our neighbors. Like, what are all these people that are coming to your house, you know, uh, bringing meals and able to, to share that that's what the body of the church is. Um, to be able to go to some friends of ours and other neighbors and, and to actually want to plead with them and say, you have to be part of a church body because you're missing out. And I was able to say that just out of overflow. You're missing out because we have experienced such love. And to be able just to, to testify that on a firsthand basis, that is what the church body is, brothers and sisters in Christ. So before we go in um, to the message this morning, would you pray once more with me? God, we do praise you for your many blessings you've given us. God, even the air, as we sang about, that, that we breathe is given by you. God, help us to be appreciative of all of those things. Help us to understand our need for you. God, I pray that you may speak through me. May your word change hearts today. May it change my heart. May you continually work in our lives, God. We are desperately in need of you, and we want to fall more and more in love with you, and we praise you for who you are. May you be with us today, and that we may hear what we need to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look at probably one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said that the whole world knows about. Um, other, other religions believe it. Human secularists believe it. It's taught in public schools. Um, you were probably taught this in grade school. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And this is called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would... Maybe I should have prepped you that you were going to have to finish that. So we'll, we'll get better. Anytime I do this, I guess that's what that means. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The ESV says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And then it says, for this is the law and the prophets. This verse, most of the time, if you're reading through the whole Sermon on the Mount, it looks like really this verse is just stuck in there. Like it really doesn't have a lot to do with some of the things around it. And Jesus was continually trying to hit a point. And this was kind of the capstone 
If you look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's a capstone of what Jesus was saying. It's considered the end all of social ethics. The Mount Everest of all ethical teaching in the world is this one verse, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's taught by Christians and secular humanists alike who don't believe in Jesus Christ. But the negative form of this golden rule has been around for a long, long time. And it's been spoken by many religions. I want to give a couple examples of that and what I mean by the negative form. The Jewish rabbi, Hillel, said, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to others. That is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Psalms 15.3, the psalmist had the negative when he said that only the man who does no evil to his neighbor can approach God. Confucius, one of the basic principles from that says, is there one word which may serve as a rule for practice for all of one's life? Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Hinduism says, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. And then Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurt. So the negative form of the golden rule has been around for a long time. But Jesus was the first and the only person who gave the positive form of do unto others what you would have them do unto you. The negative form was self-centered. Don't do this because then you don't want it done to yourself. And it was all about self and self was at the center. And Jesus ultimately was calling us back to die to ourselves. And he said, it's not about what you get. It's about what you give. And that's continually what Jesus' message was. And we see this, it's a, it's a call to die to ourselves. It's a call to be poor in spirit as we've been going through. But this verse is so misunderstood. It's taught by those who don't believe in God as well as those who do. And there's a problem with that, especially when we teach it in the same way. Now, we must strive to do the golden rule. That should be our desire, to strive to do these things. But we must understand that the golden rule alone is not the sum total of the Christian faith. Because it has nothing to do with God's redemptive plan of history. It has nothing to do with God's redemptive plan in your life or my life. It's pointing us to something. But for far too long, the church, and we're represented in this, the church has used this verse as a moral banner for Christianity. And we're going to dig into that. And that leads me to my first point this morning. Jesus did not die to make men moral. That wasn't his purpose. And many times we think it was. And we live our life like it was. So Jesus did not die to make men moral. It's not about cleaning up an area of your life. It's not about having this better job. Or a child or a neighbor change behaviors. And so many times when we're in conversation with people, I find I'm in a conversation with somebody and it's almost like the epitome of success in the Christian lifestyle is to kind of have somebody living out the good old Christian faith. And it has nothing to do about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It has everything to do about how they're living their life. And so I'm talking to a parent and they're talking about their son or their daughter or I'm talking to somebody and they're talking about their friend. And it's almost like when they talk about, yeah, they married this good girl. 
and they just had this happen in their life, or he just got a promotion. And it's almost like we put so much value on the surface level things that this Christianity must be working because they're going to church, they, they got this good job, they just bought a new house, and it has nothing, we're, we're not even touching anything spiritual. And that's where the Christianity many times is today. And really what we should be looking at is if they're homeless, we could be thinking of our son or daughter right now or our friend. It doesn't matter if they're homeless or they're living in a mansion with servants who cook all their meals for them or they don't even have food to eat. If both of those people don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that should be what's most on our heart we're concerned about. Not that this person's doing pretty good and I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of them and they say they're a believer, but they don't live their life that way. They're not pursuing God. They're not broken to sin. They're not leading their family. And, and this person over here, they really need to get their life worked on because, you know, they made a lot of bad decisions. They don't have a home. They don't have a job. Both of those people are in the same category if they don't have a relationship with Christ. And we, as a church, must understand that. That leads me to point number two. Christianity's success is not measured by morality. Your success as a friend, as a spouse, as a parent, as somebody who's doing evangelism is not to have or not to produce somebody who has a good life or for your children, somebody who's well-mannered, who grows up and they're honor students or they're married or successful. It has nothing to do with that, but that's the example that has dominated our Christianity for decades. And, and here's, here's an example of this kind of put into practicality. Some of you might have heard this. If you have, you can say the rest of it here. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? I don't know how... I heard some people kind of quoting this, but that was a banner of the Christian fundamentalist movement years ago. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. That kind of characterized the Christian life. You do these things, then you're good. And if you have enough church and, and Jesus in your life, and then you're being successful. But I, I want us to look, because I said Christian success is not measured by morality. And that's not what true Christian success looks like. We're going to look at what that is. But I want us to look back at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Most of the time we stop there, but that's not the whole verse. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's all we say. But it continues on, for this is the law and the prophets. The rest of the verse is so important for what we just read. So let's dig into this. Jesus is saying the whole law and the prophets rest on that one thing. So we need to know what the law and the prophets mean for us to actually understand do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. This leads me to my next point. The purpose of the law was to reveal the burden of sin. Purpose of the law was to reveal the burden of sin. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to begin studying this. So Romans chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn there.
Romans 7, 7 says this, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I would not have known, what is it that covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet? So we see here, the law is what actually showed us what the sin is. And, and he's saying, I wouldn't have even known what sin was if not had been for the law. So the law reveals sin. Turn a couple of pages back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 9. It says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. So even though this is in the New Testament, it says, as it is written, it's quoting the Old Testament, it's quoting Psalms, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, this next portion. This is what the Old Testament is telling us about ourselves. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. So that's what the Old Testament has shown us so far, that we can't seek God and none of us are good enough. Let's keep going. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So not even one person does good. Doesn't get any better when we keep going. It says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And I want to ask a question here. Why does the law speak to sinful people? The law, remember, it shows the burden of sin. Why does it speak to us? Why did God give us the law? Well, we're going to see in the rest of the verse, follow along in verse 19, the rest of it. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. That's a purpose of the law. And most churches don't touch it at all. But a purpose, the whole reason God gave us the law was to show us sin, to reveal sin, and to show us we're not good enough, none of us are good enough, we've always not desired God. It's what we just read through. No one seeks after him. No one understands. Everyone has turned away from God. And then it says, why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable. What this means is for every single one of you and for myself, God gave us the law so that one day when we stand before him, he's going to silence our mouth with the law, which means we're trying to self-justify ourselves because we're pretty good people. I'm pretty good. I'm a blessing to whoever or to the church. And God's saying, no, you're not. And he has a whole list of rules that we've broken. And he gave us these rules so that we look and we see how broken we are so that we stop our self-justifying. If you've had children, you know that there can be self-justification of why they did something. And they're trying to, they're really convinced that they're pretty good, even though they could have just thrown their brother off a balcony or something, and they did it for a good reason, right? That's, that's kind of how we are with God. But, but, I'm pretty good, but I do this too, but, and God's saying, no, you're not. And he gave us a whole list why. And then let's finish in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified 
That means have a right standing before God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we see that the law was given so that we understand our sin. The whole Old Testament was given so that we understand our depravity, our brokenness, our sinfulness, and that we can't do anything unless he comes and reveals these things and changes us. Number four, point number four, that was the purpose of the law, but it also says the prophets. The law and the prophets was all wrapped up in that verse. So let's look for a second at the prophets. Purpose of the prophets was to reveal the coming Savior from our sins. We were going to have a Savior we would have looked forward to. In the Old Testament, they prophesied this. So they understood their sin and their brokenness, and they had this weight of sin that they were trying to, to, trying to do right, and they were failing in it. And God just didn't give them a heavy weight. He actually said, here's the heavy weight, but here's somebody in the future you can look forward to who's going to be able to carry that weight. And these prophecies include um, miraculous conception, virgin birth, flight to Egypt, the return to Galilee, the healings, mighty work, Jesus preaching the gospel through the land of Judea uh, and Galilee, persecution, suffering, death by crucifixion, the place of his burial, the time of his resurrection. There are literally hundreds of prophecies that took place and were fulfilled completely in Jesus' life. And the Old Testament, they were told about that. And the New Testament, we see those things come. And Romans chapter 3, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law shows how broken we are, and the prophets point us to somebody who was going to actually be able to carry the weight of sin. Earlier, when we started this whole series through the Sermon on the Mount, we went through Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law. He's not coming to get rid of the law, and he's saying that he's actually coming to fulfill the prophets, and he's saying not one ounce of the law is going to pass away. And then he goes and he says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into heaven. And at that moment, the audience, as we learned weeks ago, probably dropped their jaw and gasped, who can live that way? Those people live like perfect lives. And Jesus' point was, you can't live that way. And then he follows up with the same thing of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, the capstone, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they're asking, who can live this way? And Jesus' point was, you can't live that way. Remember, and I I want us to kind of get back to this. It says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For that is the whole purpose of the Old Testament, right? We have to finish the rest of the verse. The whole purpose of the Old Testament and the prophets was to point our sinfulness out and to show us there was a coming Savior. And, and what we many times do is we tell our children and we tell others and we tell ourselves we just need to follow the golden rule. And the purpose Jesus gave for the golden rule was to show us we couldn't follow the golden rule rule. It's, it's the whole thing we've been going through in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 of being poor in spirit, that we are broken over our sinfulness towards God. And I, I want to ask us, and this is for myself too, as I, I struggle with this, is how desperate are we for God? How desperate are we? I mean, you're here this morning, are you in an attitude of brokenness over your sin? 
Because many times I get up and I don't think a thing about my sin and I go to church and I sit in church and, and I'm not living out this brokenness over my sin. And many times we just jump to the conclusion, well, Jesus, Jesus has taken over my sin. Why should I be mourning about my sin? You can't understand what Christ has done for us until we actually reflect what he's done for us. You can't understand what he's done for us until you understand how far bad you were and still are. You have those capacities and you live in them daily. And so I ask you this morning, how broken are you over the sin in your life? That's a question we should be asking us. It should be the continual state of our soul this morning. It's not, I was broken when I first accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. You know, at that moment, I was really broken. I really understood my sin and God's love for me. And then I picked myself up and I lived the rest of my life not thinking about how sinful I am because he took care of that. It should be a continual state of mind as we go through our life. Our life should look like what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15. You don't need to turn there. But he said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul, who had walked with Jesus Christ, who had been used by God to plant churches from the very beginning, and wrote 70% of the New Testament, just stated, he is the worst of sinners. And many times, we, who we don't compare ourselves to Paul, but we, we can't even say that ourselves. When's the last time you were on your knees broken before God over your sin? When's the last time I was? That's a good question for us to ask. And it's sometimes where we just need to go home and spend time with God and say, God, I know I'm more sinful than I claim to be. Break my heart over that. He can do that as well. But I want to, I want to get back to Jesus did not die to make men moral. And Christianity's success is not measured by morality. I gave the practical example of don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And I want to play this out, what we do in church. And I may get kicked out, stoned, or something for the next two words that I talk about this morning because it is a love um, in Baptist churches, as well as a lot of churches, this cartoon series. Some of you know where I'm going. Um, and the next two words I want to talk about is Veggie Tales. <laughs> veggie Tales, for those of you who know or don't know, is a biblically based children's show that teaches biblical principles. So it's teaching kids basically don't steal, don't lie, don't hit. It's teaching them how to give, how to share, and it's doing it all from Old Testament stories. Great goals for children, right? Just plug it in. We have Veggie Tales at our house. You plug it in, and they're learning biblical principles. But I hope you see from this morning's message that the Old Testament and the Golden Rule were given to us, not for a set of rules, but to show us, remember, the Old Testament, you're broken, you can't do it, you've never been able to do it, and you're never going to be able to do it, and the prophets were pointing to somebody who wasn't broken and who could do it. Yet we take this golden rule and we teach it to our children, and I was taught it in public schools, and we try to change behavior without talking about Jesus Christ at all. And it's the same thing this series does. It teaches 
how to live life, how to do right without any acknowledgement of sin, without any acknowledgement about Jesus Christ and salvation, his death and burial and resurrection. And this lack of acknowledgement of sin is a huge issue. Pastor Terry last week talked about in most churches or a lot of churches around the country that they are folding over to homosexuality because they don't want to confront this issue. They're just saying, oh, we won't, we're not going to make it a big issue. And it's listed in 1 Corinthians with all the other sins that are big issues. It's listed there, but yet we take that one out. Um, just this past week, World Vision, one of the largest children's sponsors around the world, stated that they were going to allow employees with a homosexual lifestyle as long as they're legally married to work there. And it's one of the largest Christian organizations that sponsors children in poverty. We, our church, actually has a sponsor with them for a child. And so they came out and said this, and it's listed clearly in Scripture, and it created an uproar, and all of a sudden all these Christians, and a lot of churches are like, yeah, you know, we need to have this. We need to be more open so that we can, you know, maybe get these people in and reach them. And those who are actually following what the Bible says, says, time out. You can't open the door. Are you now going to open the door to those living in adultery? Are you going to allow them? Are you going to do this and this? So what we ended up doing was I called them and sent them an email and said, we can't support that. We're not going to talk about you as in our church anymore. And, and this sponsorship, we're going we're to contact our child and tell them, what you've done is sinful, not the child, but what the company's done. Within, within 24 hours, I guess they were so inundated with actually biblical churches calling them and biblical people that they immediately reversed their decision. Praise God. That's right. Finally, sometimes it actually worked whenever there's an outrage, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the backlash is now going to come from the other side of you just caved in to all those Christians. Um, they shouldn't have even touched it to begin with, but this is the type of thing. They didn't want to identify it as sin. And just as a side note, homosexuality is just as every other sin in the Bible. And that's something when we call somebody, this is on a, on a side tangent, but it's so prevalent in our culture in the news right now. When we call somebody gay or homosexual, we've just labeled them as that's how, who they are. We don't do that with somebody living in an adulterous relationship. We don't do that with somebody who has a problem with some type of an addiction. All of a sudden, we've acted like that person is outside the love and the salvation of Jesus Christ to save them and free them of their sin by saying that's who they are. We just need to accept it. Are we going to accept every sins? No, we can't do that because Christ's love, death, burial, resurrection can set all of the sins free. And that's the stance that we have to continue to take. And, and I know there was a lot of debating. Some of you even posted on Facebook where there was some debating going on where people said, so are you going to start picking out every person's sin and say that that's not good enough the way they're living? Absolutely. That's what we're called to do, right? That's what we're called to do every single time. It's why we have church accountability. So sin must be identified. And we must understand the golden rule was not given to us for us to try to keep it. It's given to us to show we could never keep it to begin with. And for years, churches have used VeggieTales and things like it, and they've preached messages where they're going to teach you how to go do something without actually changing the heart of the issue. And 
I want to I kind of give a call out to parents, grandparents, anyone here who has any influence in the life of a child or an adult about any choices that they're making in their life, which should be all of us. When a child is disobeying, sinning, arguing, hitting, yelling, being mean, which also includes when adults do those things, okay? That is a joke. Not really, because it actually does happen, unfortunately. Um, so when there's disobeying, sinning, arguing, you have in that moment a responsibility like no other moment. And the moment is to not stop the child from doing those things. That would be doing the golden rule, right? It's actually to show them what they're doing is sinful. That's the most important thing in that moment. And the same thing is true with our friends or our family members or our parents, is if there's something going on that's unacceptable to God, it's not a matter of trying to change behavior. It's a matter of pointing out, hey, time out. Do you know that that's sin? And actually talking about it, identifying it. If they don't understand it's sin, they're not, not going to understand that there's actually a wrath of God that is going to come and deal with sin. And if you just change the behavior, what you're really doing is you're just enforcing that Good behavior equals good Christianity. And that's exactly what Jesus came against. In short, if there's a behavioral change in your family member, son or daughter or friend, that was not brought about by them understanding their sin and then being pointed to Jesus Christ, the only thing you're enforcing is good behavior equals good Christianity. If you don't identify it as sin and you don't talk about why that's a big deal, what that should do, even if your child is young, even if your friend's child is young, that should cause them, I sin all the time. And then you have an opportunity to share about why that's a big deal, what God does about sin, and then you can actually talk about Jesus Christ, the gospel. But instead, we try to change behavior so our kids or our family members or our neighbors think, I need to live this way in order to be accepted by the church. Or I need to live this way in order for my parents to be well pleased in me. And it is so hard to then present the gospel to that type of child or to that adult because they, they think they already have it all taken care of because their life is much better than their other neighbor's life. Are you following me? And that's the way that the church has lived decades and our church is still influenced. I'm influenced. We're all influenced. And it's the same thing Jesus was teaching against of being a Pharisee. Is it's just not about your behavior. It's about we are so broken. The law shows us we're broken. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can't do it. You never could. The Old Testament shows that Jesus Christ was the only one who ever could do that. That's what should bring us to repentance. I didn't know about it at the time um, until after I was almost done writing my message. I just did some research on VeggieTales, and I found this quote by Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. And this is what Phil said about a year ago. Listen to this. This is a quote by him. I look back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly, without actually teaching them Christianity. 
And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or hey kids, be kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity, it's morality. And that was such a huge shift for me from my American Christian ideal. Listen to this. He says, we are drinking a cocktail that's a mix of Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good enough so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. So I had to peel that apart. I realize I'm not, pursuing, I'm not supposed to be pursuing impact. I'm supposed to be pursuing God. And when I pursue God first... I will have exactly as much impact as he wants me to have. Incredible that he created this and 10 years later he realized what he's done and what the influence that it's had. That's why we are trying to do so many things differently here. And a number of those things we we try to do differently It's because we're trying to preach about our inadequacies inadequacies so that we can show the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because when we act like that we are good and we have everything together, it downplays what he's done for us on the cross, and it downplays the sufficiency of him. So we really have a lot of work to do as a church, in our church, as a culture here on Marco Island in Naples, and around the country in trying to reclaim that this Christianity thing is not about right living. It's not about living a certain way so that everybody else or God would be well pleased in your actions. We need to understand Christ has done everything we couldn't. He is sufficient for us. And the only thing we could give him in return was our filthy sinfulness. That was the only thing I could offer God, which isn't even neutral. It's actually hostility towards God. That's the only thing we could offer him, yet he still decided to step into our world to die a horrible death, be resurrected in obedience to God the Father, to give us a hope, not that we could trust in ourselves, not that I'm going to follow the the Ten Commandments because I can't, I've broken them, not that I can follow the Golden Rule because I can't, it only points back to the Ten Commandments, but that I can look towards what the prophets have said would come, and that's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what we have to focus on. We have to be mournful of our sin. We have to be broken about that. And I would encourage you to spend some time tonight and really just really think about your life. Are you broken over your sin? And if you're not, ask God to help confront you, to give you a softer spirit towards sin and towards his righteousness. Um, How we do invitations here is a little bit different because we really want to take time to meet with you. If you feel that God has maybe opened your eyes with something different or you've learned something or you want, you have any questions, maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior before. If you have any of those questions or anything you'd like to talk with us about, I will be available right after service here in the front. Pastor Terry will be in the back and we encourage you, come talk with us. There's nothing more exciting for us than God working and speaking to people and their response to that. 
That's what the word is for, is, is to be responsive and to bring him glory in that. So come talk with us. We'll be available here and also in the back. Would you pray with me? And then I have one more thing to share. Let's pray. God, we do praise you for who you are. God, we thank you for your word. God, help us to break free of this morality thinking that we're pretty good because of blank, how we live our life. God, help us to be often broken about who we still are in the flesh, who you've called us to be. God, we do give you praise for this morning. God, we ask that you may be glorified in our week. God, help us to understand what you've done, the significance that it has. Help us to teach our kids the right manner Help us to identify sin, not in a condemning way, but in a way because that is the only way we can point people to the hope of Jesus Christ, is to first have them broken over their sinfulness. God, that is what the world is lacking, is is that loving identity of sin so that we can point them to the work that you have done. God, we give you praise that there still are biblical churches and people in America that are pursuing and honoring your word as true in all matters. And we thank you that you are at work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.